Hello. Thank you for uh, inviting us into your space today. We've got a lot going on at Christ Community that we'd love for you to get involved with. So head on over to our website, check out our coming up page so you can see all the different ways you can get connected. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe so you can see whenever new content's available. Enjoy the message. So glad all of you are here to worship the Lord. And for those of you who are watching online, welcome. Those of you who are listening to our podcast, welcome. We're so glad all of you are a part of what God is doing at Christ Community. My wife, Raylene, and I, we have two golden doodles that we love, uh, plus our two sons and their wives each have two dogs. Um, they all visited us recently. This was the view from our kitchen window. Uh, yes, there are six, five doodles and one poodle. Um, you know, one thing that has become so evident um, to me over the last few years is that Raylene, my wife Raylene, is really good with dogs. It is an amazing and beautiful thing to watch. When one of our dogs recently had a foot infection, she nursed him back to health like a pro. I mean, she grooms our dogs. She is a natural at dogs. One of the most impressive aspects of this is that when any dog or puppy in our home starts doing something that they shouldn't be doing, like eating a plant or jumping on people, my calm, gentle wife, Raylene, has this very unique sound that she makes. Uh, something like that. I can't even come close to replicating what it sounds like. All I know is that that sound makes everyone in the home, including me, stop and feel guilty for whatever we were doing at the time. So Raylene's uh, is like this incredibly effective warning that comes from a huge heart of love helping keep any dog in our house out of trouble. So as I was studying the passage that we're looking at today in our journey through 1 Corinthians, I realized this passage is Paul's uh-uh uh, moment, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 14, Paul articulates one of the strongest warnings that we find in the Bible. But it is a warning that comes from a heart of love, the heart of a pastor who is concerned for his flock, wanting to help them avoid harm. So what is he warning the church in Corinth about? Well, if you've been engaging in the messages for the past few weeks, you know that chapters 8 through 10 of this book, in these chapters, Paul is addressing this primary question. How can we influence our culture for Jesus without being negatively influenced by our culture. This is a major theme throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, God chooses Israel to be his people in order for them to bless the nations, in order for them to be used by God to share with others the news about who God is, how amazing God is. So he gives them, he rescues them, gives them the promised land in order to be a light to the world. But what happens? Well, as they get settled into this land, they end up being influenced by the other cultures in a negative way. And what's fascinating is that the very issue that got the Israelites into trouble in the cultures they were moving into is the same issue Paul is warning the Corinthians about, and it's the same issue that gets us into trouble as well. When you boil it all down, there really is one foundational issue that causes God's people, including us, to become influenced by our culture 
in a spiritually harmful way, and that issue is idolatry. In the last verse of the passage that we're looking at today, Paul summarizes his main point. I've noticed this about in studying 1 Corinthians. He often doesn't state his main, his main point until, you know, several verses. Now. Oh, that's where he's going. So we're going to, I've learned, we're going to start with verse 14 here. Here's his main point. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Uh-uh, right? That's the warning here. That's Paul's bottom line. This whole passage that we're looking at today is a very strong warning for us regarding idolatry and the negative impact it will have in our lives. Okay, so let's unpack this. What we find in this passage is that Paul is answering some very, very important questions about idolatry. First question he addresses is this, what exactly is idolatry? What is it? Let's start beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drink and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Okay, what Paul is doing here is using the Old Testament example of the Israelites in order to connect their story to our story. Paul sees in the story of the Israelites a parallel to our story. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and by passing through the sea. The cloud represented the presence of God. So Paul sees in their story a baptism of the spirit, the presence of God, and of water, just like us. He sees in their story that the manna and the water God provided them were a spiritual foretaste of drinking from the life of Jesus, the rock, right? So, so why is Paul drawing this parallel? <clears throat> it's because he wants us to see ourselves in their story that we are just like the Israelites in terms of our having a relationship with God and receiving his provision and his salvation, and that we are also just as vulnerable to idolatry. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. <clears throat> so did you notice how, in the verse we just read, notice how in the midst of the scary description of what just happened to these Israelites, to these people, because of their idolatry, Paul articulates a really clear definition of idolatry. Paul says it is about setting our hearts on something other than God. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry occurs when we set our ultimate heart desire on anything other than God. Now, notice how broadly Paul defines idolatry. It is not limited to cultures where people may bow down to some statue, nor is it limited to the situation in Corinth where people were regularly going to temples and, and, and offering various sacrifices of various gods and all that. No, idolatry is so much more expansive than simply a religious ritual. Idolatry is all about what occupies first place in our heart. 
It's about what we desire, about what we love, what we give our attention to, and what we get passionate about, what play, what we, where we place our ultimate trust. The, the NIV translates verse 6 in this way, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Now, the word translated evil things in the NIV, it's, it's the Greek word, word epithemeo. And technically speaking, this word is not simply referring to evil desires, wanting to murder someone, wanting to do something really, really evil. No, this word literally means over-desire, epithemeo, over-desire. It is about desiring something too much so that this thing becomes more important than anything else in our lives, so that this thing becomes our purpose. It becomes how we measure our value. It becomes where we're trying to find ultimate joy, which means that idolatry is not just about evil desires. Idolatry is about, it's also about overly desiring something good. Idolatry happens whenever we attach too much value, too much importance on anything other than God. For instance, I love playing golf, but I will freely admit there are times in my life where golf has become an idol, where it's not just about me enjoying the game, it's about me getting better. So I start to rearrange everything else in my life so that I can get to the practice range as often as possible. And then I, every spare moment in the evening, I'm pulling up you know, YouTube golf videos. Why? Because of this need, this desire to get better at golf. Why do I want to get better? Because I want to impress people. I don't want to fail. Do you, do you see how deep this can go? When we start exploring the desires of our heart, it's not that golf is evil. It's what my heart does with it. It's what my heart is doing with it. See, I, I, I at times have chosen to make getting better at golf the measure of my identity and my passion and my focus. And guess what gets squeezed out in that picture? Jesus. Always safe to answer Jesus in church. So when I ask a question, throw that out there. But anyway, in that one, it is Jesus. See, my, my relationship with him gets squeezed out. My drawing my identity from him, being passionate about him, all of that gets squeezed out. See, our human hearts tend to do this with any number of things, even good things. I mean, exercise is great. Exercise is great. I love exercise. But working out can become an idol. Where, where our working out becomes an obsession. It, it's fueled by this obsession about how we look in the eyes of other people. Having children is wonderful, but children can become an idol where parents obsess about their children's performance and scholarship potential and all of that. What about politics? I mean, politics is certainly an important aspect of living in our country, but what happens when we set our heart upon political outcomes and elections. I've seen Christians on, I've lived long enough here, I've seen multiple elections, seen Christians on both sides of the aisle get thrown into a fearful panic and depression because their candidate didn't win. Now look, it's, it's normal to be disappointed, but the fear and the anger generated, that smells of idolatry. Something that we have placed too much importance in. Who are we ultimately trusting in? And then there are the obvious ones, right? Like money. 
It's certainly normal to want to have money to live on and buy things, but that easily becomes an idol. I mean, really, this this is a huge question for our culture. When is enough enough? I mean, look, I I get, whatever, draft draft and all this stuff. I I mean, is is $200 million really not enough? You're, You're negotiating for $250 million? You know, it's easy for me to criticize in my position. But anyway, but when is enough enough? What brings us a greater sense of security? Our relationship with Jesus or having a certain amount of money in retirement, our retirement account? What are we trusting in? Idolatry occurs anytime we set our hearts upon something other than God. Our money, our likes on social media, our political party or agenda, our physical appearance, our kids' performance, our car, our football team, our golf handicap, our spouse. I mean, idolatry is a heart issue. What we ultimately love and desire and need and trust in, whatever that is, if it's not God, it's an idol. Second question Paul addresses. What are some of the evidences that idolatry is at work in our lives? Well, the first evidence Paul mentions is what I would refer to, refer to as overindulging. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This is a reference to the infamous episode where immediately after God frees his people from Egypt through a dramatic parting the Red Sea, pretty amazing stuff, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Lord's commandments. And he he happens to spend too much time there from the people's perspective. He was up there for 40 days and the people decide, Moses, he's just abandoned them. He's not coming down. So they throw their jewelry together and they, into the fire, and they mold this golden calf, which would be their God. And so then they start making sacrifice to this golden calf. And after that, they had a party. They began overindulging in food and drink. One of the obvious evidences of idolatry in our lives is the amount of time and energy and effort that we give to this thing, whatever it is. Where are we overindulging? YouTube, dessert, video games, social media, alcohol, political news, work. Where are we watching, eating, drinking, doing too much of this activity? And we know it, but we keep doing it. That's evidence that an idol is at work. Second evidence Paul mentions, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 25, where some of the Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with some Moabite women, which led them, who led them to kind of worship other gods. Sexual immorality is a huge issue in our culture, and it is an area where our culture is influencing us often in a very harmful way, shaping the desires of our hearts so that we find ourselves pursuing sexual highs, however the world offers them, sex chats, hookups, pornography, it's just everywhere. And it can easily seduce our hearts from our love for God. One of, the, one of the things that happens when we start giving in to sexual sin is that our desire for God goes out the window. We can't have two loves. So what happens is in particular with sexual sin is our desire for God goes out the window. We don't want to pray. We don't want to go to church. don't want to go to Bible study. We don't want to worship. Sexual immorality literally steals our hearts. 
It steals our hearts. A third evidence of idolatry being at work in our lives is grumbling and complaining. Look at verse 9 and 10. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Both of these episodes are referring to times when the children of Israel griped and complained about God's provision. Manna again, you know, that whole thing. Um, but it, it, it's pretty fascinating here and a little surprising, right? How Paul ties grumbling to idolatry. And this is not the only place he does this. In Romans chapter one, does the same thing. Look at this, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Notice how ingratitude becomes the gateway to idolatry, according to Paul. Why? Because when we aren't content with what we have, guess what we do? We set our hearts on other things. We set our hearts on other things. We grumble against God. We complain about what we don't have. And it creates a warm Petri dish for the virus of idolatry to grow in our hearts. All the things Paul mentions here, overindulging, sexual immorality, and grumbling, these are just tangible evidences that idolatry is at work in our hearts. Which raises a question, so what, right? Well, so what if we have some idolatry going on in our hearts? What's the big deal about overindulging or whatever? What's the big deal? Well, that leads to the third question that Paul answers in this passage. Why is idolatry in our lives such a big deal? Over and over again in this passage, we just read, Paul shares these pretty disturbing consequences of idolatry. He says in verse 5 that some of the Israelites' bodies were scattered over the wilderness. He says in verse 8, 23,000 people died. He says in verse 9 that many were killed by snakes in response to their griping and grumbling. And in verse 10, he talks about how some of the gripers were killed by the destroyer. The NIV translates the destroying angel, but literally, it literally means destroyer. And then he says this in verse 11. These things, just been describing, they happen to them as examples and were written down as, uh -uh, right, as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul is clearly using these examples to warn the Corinthians and us about the serious dangers and consequences of idolatry in our lives. Now, obviously, the consequences described in the Old Testament passages were very vivid, horrible, which reflected the cultural realities of that time period. But Paul makes it very clear here that there are serious consequences to idolatry in our lives today as well. In Romans 1, which we read a moment ago, Paul describes, you can look at this later, but he describes how over and over in this passage, he describes how when people, they stop giving thanks to God, they start worshiping created things rather than the creator, what happens, he says, is their hearts become hardened and, and, they, and, and they start giving in to more and more distorted ways of living. That whole passage is just, this just increasingly distorted ways of living. And what Paul's over and over again says throughout that passage, what happens in this process is that God gave them over to their idolatry, which is a really horrifying thought. This isn't about God sending snakes 
or lightning bolts when we give into idolatry. This is about God saying, okay, if that's what you want, I'm not gonna stop you. I am giving you over to that. And so this thing we desire and we give ourselves to begins to control us, to enslave us. We can't stop. See, this is the irony of idolatry. It begins with us freely choosing. Hey, we're free to do whatever. We're freely choosing to set our hearts on these things that we hope will bring us joy. But very soon, those very things that we were freely choosing are now ruling us. They're now controlling us. They're ruling our decisions. They're robbing us of the joy that we were so earnestly seeking. And as these things increasingly rule our lives, we reap more consequences of our idolatry. Emptiness, withdrawal from people, relational distance, marital stress, our family being neglected. I was talking with someone the other day who just retired, and he said, my girls are 16 years old, and all they've heard me say to them growing up is, I'm sorry I can't be there, I have to work. That broke my heart, 16 years of his children's lives he's missed because of work. Was it worth it? I heard someone recently say that idolatry is anything you'll sacrifice your family for. In the Old Testament, people would actually sacrifice their children to God's. We read that stuff and we're horrified by it, but how many children's hearts today are being sacrificed on the altar of their parents' greed or sexual immorality or alcohol or whatever. There there is always a cost to our our idolatry. Always a cost to our idolatry. If we choose to worship the opinions of other people more than God, well, the result will be greater levels of fear, insecurity, obsession about our performance and our social media profile, all our appearance, all that stuff. If we choose to give our hearts to sexual immorality, it will result in greater bondage, guilt, shame, distance relationships, hurt, etc. If we, if we choose to worship our work, our relationships will be negatively impacted as well as our health. If we choose to worship our money, our heart will become increasingly self-centered and empty. I mean, the, the consequences of our idolatry are real and significant. Idolatry in any form robs us of our experience of life in Christ and it robs us of our capacity to love. I think it's really important for us to ask not only what our idols are, but what are they costing us? What are they costing us? And is it worth it? Is it worth that? Okay, so what do we do if we see the consequences of idolatry in our lives? We want to change the trajectory of our life. We want to walk in freedom from idolatry. Well, that is what Paul focuses on next in this passage. How do we keep our hearts free from idolatry? Near the end of this passage, Paul gives us this practical path to remove idolatry from our lives. Look at verse 12 and 13. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. In other words, all of us are vulnerable to this. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Man, I am so thankful that Paul included this in this passage up to this point. It's pretty heavy, right? Um, and kind of joyless. It felt like, don't do this, scat, bodies scattered all over the you know, desert. <laughs> Stay away from all that idolatry. But here, here we see God's heart. Yeah, he strongly warns us against idolatry because of the damage it will do in our lives. But he also is actively at work to, and available to help us live in freedom from idolatry in our lives. So there, there are a couple of things I, I want to highlight from this amazing verse here. For one thing, notice how Paul reminds us that we're normal. You're normal. <laughs> if you are battling some temptation, you're normal. It doesn't matter what the temptation is. You're normal. It's what he's saying here. The temptations we face in terms of giving our hearts to things other than God, whatever those things are, they are not unique to you. They are not unique to me. They are not unique to, you know, you're, you're, you're unique in your struggle. No, they are common to humanity. So don't feel like your battle is somehow unique to you and no other Christian could possibly struggle with what you struggle with. No, you are not alone and you're not unique in your battle against idolatry. You're not, and I'm not, and that's good news. That's good news. Another thing Paul reminds us of here is God's faithfulness. God is faithful to us. He wants to help us walk in freedom from idolatry. How? Well, Paul says, God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Every temptation we face to love something more than God, to place our trust in something other than God, that temptation is not going to be beyond what we can handle. Now, notice, Paul doesn't say God will remove the temptation from you. He doesn't say that. No, Paul says God is, is going to make sure that you are able to bear up under the temptation, that you're able to stand up against it, which tells us something really, really important. Part of the purpose of temptation is to teach us how to stand. It is to teach us how to stand. If God just removed the temptation, anytime we're tempted, oh, it just removes it completely, we would learn what he wants us to learn. You know, we, we've all heard those stories of someone finding a cocoon and they're seeing the butterfly coming out and, you know, a wing comes out here, and, but they see the butterfly kind of struggling and so they, oh, I'll help it out. And so they, you know, maybe make a little slit. They cut the cocoon just so that it's easier for the, the butterfly to get out. And, 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 but what happens? The butterfly can't fly. It missed the crucial opportunity to grow strong in the struggle. Our temptations are opportunities to grow in resilience, in self-control, in strength. So let's not see our temptations as a bad thing. Let's see them like a spiritual workout designed to help you and me grow stronger in our faith. And the flip side of this, Paul says here, is that God also provides a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. There is always a way out. Always. There is always a way out. There is always a choice we have. No one forces us to sin. No one forces us to sin. There is always that moment of personal decision. Now, again, at gunpoint, you know what I'm saying. Okay, don't, don't, I bet someone could force someone to sin. Yeah, let's not go there. I'm talking about the volitional, the choices we make to sin. We choose that. 
There's all, and there, there's always a moment of personal decision. And, 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 and am I going to say yes to this tempting desire that will, will lead me down a path of pain and bondage? Or will I submit my heart to God, which according to Paul means, verse 14, flee, get out of there, don't play with the desire, don't ponder the desire, look for the escape hatch God provides and get out of there, ASAP. Paul says in verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. See, what often happens in this place of temptation is what my counselor refers to as edging. Edging. We get, we get near the edge of the temptation. Oh, I'll just take one look. Just one inhale. Just one drink. Just one little white light. Whatever. You fill in the blank. We all know our vulnerabilities. We, we, we know the path that that one little choice is going to place us on. And before we know it, we are full-blown pursuing that sin. Following the disordered desires of our heart that is now choosing idolatry rather than the Lord. And that just causes a disordering of the way we were created to live so we are following the disordered desires of our heart rather than our one true treasure and love. One of the things that I learned years ago from the late Pastor Tim Keller was this powerful idea that when we're dealing with these idolatrous desires that we struggle, we're vulnerable to, and you know, it feels like a losing battle. When we're dealing with idolatrous desires, in our hearts, the best way to overcome this is not by trying to minimize the desire for that thing or fight the desire, stop doing that. Don't, no, the best way to overcome idolatrous desires is not by trying to resist or fight the desire. The best way to overcome idolatry is to tap into a greater desire, to set your heart on something that captures your love and attention more than that thing. Let's say your teenager sleeps in every morning throughout the summer. You can't get her up before noon. But the first Monday in August, she's bolting out the door at 6.30 a.m. Why? Because her desire for sleep was overtaken by a greater desire for volleyball. It wasn't that she lost her desire for sleep. Her heart was captivated by a greater desire. And when that alarm went off, she is out of bed into the gymnasium. One of the most effective weapons against the pull of idolatry in our hearts is to intentionally fuel our love and our passion for Jesus, so that our desire for him supersedes every other desire. Which leads us to this very important question. What are you and I doing to stoke the flame of our passion for Jesus? What are we doing to stoke that passion for Jesus so that our desire for him is greater than any other desire in our heart? Are we filling our hearts with worship? Are we spending time with Jesus in prayer and letting him delight in us? Are we delighting in him periodically throughout our day? Are we cultivating gratitude rather than grumbling? Are we reflecting upon how good it feels to be forgiven and free? Even something as simple as taking a walk 
and enjoying the Lord and enjoying his creation, all of these things help cultivate our experiential love for God because it opens our heart to a deeper experience of his love for us. The more we delight in who God is, the less the power, the less power the pull of our idols will have in our hearts and our lives. Not surprisingly, Jesus summarized this perfectly. Greatest command, this is it. Look, here's the key to fullness of life. Here's the key to walking in freedom from idolatry. Here it is. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's it. No wonder Jesus said this is the greatest commandment. When we make loving Jesus our primary heart objective, we will walk in freedom from the idols that are consuming us and they're robbing us of life. It's all about the heart. <laughs> all right, well, let's stand as we respond to the word. So I invite you, if you're able to stand, I invite you to do that. We like to stand just as a way to call our bodies to attention. And in just a moment, I'm gonna pray this very ancient prayer of come Holy Spirit. And what we're doing, we're not asking the Holy Spirit to live in us again. We're, we're simply opening our hearts afresh to the presence of God and whatever he might wanna be saying to us in response to his word or maybe something else he's stirring. So I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to open, have your hands before you with palms up. Just to, This is a posture, again, historically rooted posture of receptivity, spiritual receptivity. So I'm gonna pray, Holy Spirit, come, and then we're just gonna wait. We're gonna wait in stillness for a little bit here. So Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts and our minds afresh to you.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Jesus, we want you to be our first love. Spirit, I'm asking you in my heart and every heart here that you would fan into flame our passion for Jesus. That every other desire would lose its pull because our passion for you is so aflame with love and desire for you. Holy Spirit, would you do that in us? Would you pour out the love of the Father into our hearts in such a way that our hearts are captivated by our love for you, Jesus? We want to love you with all of our being, all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, God. We want to flee from idolatry and run after you, and so I, I'm, just, I'm just declaring freedom in our hearts, freedom in this place, and holiness and holy desires. God, we're just declaring that. Wholeness as we love you with all of our being. Wholeness and freedom. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. So we want to continue to worship and by doing that, we want to create, continue just to create space for the Holy Spirit to move. He may be doing that right where you're standing, and maybe you want to sit. It's totally cool. Just continue to open your heart to that. There also, maybe, maybe for some of you, you feel like, you know, God's doing something. I really would love someone to come alongside and just pray with me in this moment and just bless what God's doing. And so if, if that is what you would want, as we're worshiping, we invite you just to come up front here. There's, this is just ministry space here. We're not gonna embarrass you. You just come up, just stand, receive from the Lord. Monica or I will, will come up and just place our hand on your shoulder and just bless what God's doing. And if, if, if we sense the Lord laying anything on our heart, we, we, we'll just share that with you and you can test and weigh that. But it's just about facilitating this environment, this entire room, or wherever you're watching, just opening our hearts, continuing to open our hearts afresh to the Holy Spirit and whatever he would want to do in us. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Nothing more important than you in our lives. And in these moments, what a privilege it is to worship you, to focus our hearts on you. All right, so if something in today's sermon inspired you, captivated you, challenged you, or brought you to a place that you are just like, man, can I talk to someone? The answer is yes. Uh, so go on our site at cccgreeley.org. There's a button down at the bottom. You click it, a chat box pops up, and there are people on the other side of the chat box that would be happy to talk to you, uh, to pray over you, and just be be someone that you are able to talk to.